This is the word of the Lord. We're going to consider the entire chapter this morning. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am your shield. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord, how, O Lord, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me three, a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kezerite, or Kenazite, and the Kadamite, and the Hittite, and the Pezerite, and the Raphim, and the Amorite, and the Canite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would... Help us now and carry us along by your word and spirit as we consider this 15th and difficult chapter. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and minds that understand. Lord, do this for your people, for the sake of your son, and for the help and growth and benefit of your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I do greet you again. In the name of the Lord, welcome you again on this Lord's Day Sabbath. In our last sermon in the book of Genesis, we were helped by God, Lord willing, we were helped by God to consider and unravel the mystery of Melchizedek. If you were not here last week, I do commend that sermon to you to go back and listen to that once again. But I do pray that by the end of that sermon, you no longer saw Melchizedek as being as mysterious, Lord willing, as maybe you once did, as you learned that God intentionally 
withholds information about Melchizedek so that Melchizedek might serve as a type of Christ or as one who gives us more insight into who and what Christ will be. Types, as uh, we have said before, types are never greater than the antitype. We learn that Melchizedek was not the son of God. Uh, as Hebrews 7 says, he is like the son of God. So the absence of genealogy, the absence of marking the beginning of his days and also marking the end of his days served as a type of what the son of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be. The Son of God is without beginning of days and without end of days. The Son of God condescended to man becoming like one of his created beings. And he forever holds the title of prophet, priest, and king. Not for a season, but forever, eternally. Hebrews 7 tells us that we know when the priests of the Old Testament died. We know who they were, where they came from, and when they died. But we don't know this information about Melchizedek. Why? Is it because he's the son of God? No, not because he's the son of God, right? But because he points to what the son of God incarnate would be. The absence of information of his, his beginning of life and end of death or end of days was to point us to Christ who reigns and lives forever. Amen. Melchizedek was a type of Christ. And I'm saying this again, but the type is never greater than the antitype. Amen. The shadow is never greater than the substance. Abram was great, but Melchizedek was greater. And the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than them both. Amen. Now, at the end of that sermon, I, I said something to the effect of, what is the point of all of this? Why is it important that we know all of these rich and biblical truths? Do you remember that? And I, and I said, you might be here today asking, what does this do for my marriage? Or, or how does this help me with my kids? Or how does this help me in my pilgrimage along this temporal world, in this temporal world? And you may you may remember my response, but I want to say to you this morning that my response was incomplete. I said this. This helps you to consider Christ. That Christ is greater than your marriage. That Christ is greater than your children. That Christ is greater than anything in this temporal world. And I say amen to that particular part. But I also say that my response was not complete. Why? Because as I, as a matter of fact, my wife will tell you that we were, we were in the kitchen. I kind of hit on the kitchen counter and said, shoot, what's wrong? And I said, I, I don't feel like I actually said everything that needed to be said about why that sermon was important. Why we consider Christ. Because I may have felt, I, I felt like I may have left the impression on you that your kids and your marriage and the, the travails that we experience in this world are meaningless. My dear brothers and sisters, they are not meaningless. And may I ask for your forgiveness for not being as thorough in my statements as I should have been last week. And I want to thank also Pastor Isaiah because he mentioned this before his sermon in the morning. But I say to you that considering Christ has great and, and rich benefits on your marriage. Considering Christ has great and rich benefits on the way that you disciple your children. Considering Christ as greater helps you as you travel through this temporal world world as pilgrims onto the celestial city, the kingdom of God. Considering Christ richly affects how you love your spouse, how you lay down your life uh, for your wife, and also wives, how you submit to your husbands. Why? 
Because this is how we are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. This is happens when we consider Christ. Uh, this is what happens when we consider Christ, when wives submit to their husbands as, as the church submits to Christ. This is the result of seeing Christ as greater. This is the, the, the effects of seeing Christ as greater. Considering Christ as greater richly affects how you raise up your children in the way of truth. How? You will see your children, if you consider Christ as greater, you will see your children as the primary ones that you are called to evangelize. You will see that they are, they are uh, uh, placed in your homes so that you might lead them first, not to a, a, a great school, to a great husband or wife, but first to Christ. This is how considering Christ directly affects how you raise your children. And considering Christ affects your pilgrimage through this hostile world. How? Because you were called to be salt and light in this world. You were called to be witnesses to the nations of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is your primary mission in this world. And the trials that you face are also, they are not meaningless. They are meant to conform you to Christ. So may the Lord help us all. Now that we have a complete answer, may the Lord help us all to consider Christ and to consider Christ as, as greater in all of our lives. That's the full answer, I think. And now today we come to yet another difficult chapter in the book of Genesis. For today we are given another piece of the Abrahamic covenant. And I have just three points for you this morning. Number one, confirmation of the promise confirmation of the promise this is verses one through five confirmation of the promise after these things the word of the lord came to abram in a vision saying do not fear abram i am a shield to you your reward shall be very great here's abram's response to the promise of god O lord god what will you give me since i am childless and the heir of my house is eleazar of damascus and abram said since you have given me no offspring, give no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. Now here it is. And he took him outside, this is God, and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you were able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. As we embark on the this 15th chapter, <clears throat> we will encounter many strange details that seem hard to understand. Nevertheless, the basic idea, if you're looking for what's the big idea of chapter 15, the basic idea, the simple idea is that God is confirming his promise to Abram through a covenant, through the confirmation of a covenant. Genesis chapter 15 is composed of two sections. If you could see them as maybe a, a door that swings both ways, but is held together by one major hinge that we will consider next week. So these two sections or the two sides of chapter 15 are verses 1 through 5. That's one side. And verses 7 through 21. That's the other side. These two portions are held together by verse 6. That is the major hinge of the chapter. What is verse 6? Then he, Abram, believed the Lord. And he, he being God, reckoned or counted it to him as righteousness. 
upon these two promises of the first two sections, 1 through 5 and 7 through 11, there is a, a belief in what God is promising. And because of belief, one, Abram, is counted as righteous. This is the first time in the scriptures that we have explicitly seen the idea that righteousness is not given on the basis of works, but on the basis of faith. Now, although this is the first explicit mention of justification by faith, the only way justification is and has always been is by faith in Christ alone. Amen? So although this may be the first mention explicitly of righteousness by faith alone, righteousness has always been by faith alone in Christ alone. Verse 6 holds these two sections together, holds verses 1 through 5 and holds verses 7 through 21 together. And these two sections, section 1 through 5 and section 7 through 21, they actually mirror one another. How so? They both contain a dialogue between God and Abram in which God is confirming the promises that he has previously made to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. When God called Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans, we'll get to that in a moment. In the first section, verses one through five, Abram was expressing his fears and concerns about being what? Childless. He's growing older and still he has no heir. What is the promise or where is the promised child that would fulfill the promise of descendants? God has said, you will have many descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. Well, Abram has yet to see that promise fulfilled. God then responds to the fears and concerns of Abram. Listen, but not with new information. Not with new promises. Bible says in verse five, and he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you were able to count them, he said, so shall your offspring be. We're going to discuss how uh, this is progress. This is progress of promises that have already been made or more clarification. But this is not a new promise. Amen. It's the same promise that has already been stated but now repeated in a different way. Abram believed the Lord, but the dialogue's not over. In the second section, verses 7 through 21, God repeats another initial promise. He says in verse uh, 7, I brought, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And then what does he say? To give you this land so that you may possess it. Is this a new promise from God? No. God has already promised that he will give this land to Abram. And now he's saying the same thing in a different way. This land is yours. Abram responds, how shall I know? What is Abram asking for? Confirmation. Abram is asking for confirmation of the promise of God. What is the Lord's response? The Lord then performs this covenant ceremony and gives particular information of when he will fulfill the promise of the land. So we might say in verses 1 through 5, uh, God was assuring Abram about the promise that he will make him into a great nation through his own child. In verses 7 through 11, God was assuring Abram of the promise that he will give him this land. Those are two big parts of the promise that God has made so far. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky through the child that you will, that you will give birth to. 
and your descendants will be given this land after they are in another land for 400 years. What is that speaking of? Hebrew enslavement in Egypt, right? So God has already told Abram before the Hebrews are enslaved that they will be enslaved for 400 years. Brothers and sisters, these exchanges between God and Abram, they're not new. They are continuing the very words that God spoke to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. If you remember when God first made these promises to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, we said that the promises God made to Abram in Genesis 12, listen, serve as a roadmap for all that we will see in the life of Abram and in, the, in, his, and in his descendants. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12. Verse 1 through 4. <clears throat> now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. What does he say? I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All that we see in this initiating of the covenant promises in chapter 12 are revealed, listen to this, by further steps as the life of Abram progresses. God gives this initial promise to Abram in chapter 12. And throughout the life of Abram, these promises are then repeated. Go to Genesis chapter 13. Genesis chapter 13 and verse 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, <clears throat> after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward. What does he say? For all the land which you see, I will give to you and to your descendants. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, your descendants can also be numbered. What is God doing? The illustration that God is using has changed. But the promise remains the same. Try to count the dust. You can't. Your descendants will be more. Try to count the stars. You can't. Your descendants will be more. The idea is the same. It is very important that we, we not see this as something new that is happening in Genesis 15. But something that has already been, a, been promised and now is being confirmed. What's the, what is different here is that God comes and more formally makes this covenantal ceremony, but with the same promises. How does this fit into the flow of the, the other part of the narrative then? What's the first thing that we see in the very beginning of chapter 15? Are you with me? Are we all together? Okay. What's the first thing that we see in chapter 15 in the beginning? After these things. After what things? We've learned that the land was given to Abram or that the Lord has given Abram a mighty victory over his enemies, that he's been blessed with great wealth, that his name is now great. The Hebrews are becoming a great nation, but there was still an unsettled concern. What's Abram's concern after these things? God promised not just that his name would be great, but that he would be blessed, that he would have many descendants. And what's the problem with Abram? He has no children. What's the other problem? He's getting older. 
And the older that he gets, the more impossible this promise that God has made seems to be. Abram was beginning to think that his heir would not come from his own physical body, but that his heir would be his, his servant, Eleazar, that Eleazar would be his heir. Do you see what's happening? Fear is beginning to overtake Abram. God has already made the promises. All of the pieces of the promises of God seem to be coming together except one big piece that, that all the other promises depend on. How could it be a great nation without an heir? Who's the land going to be given to if it's not his descendants? There's a big problem. And it seems even more of a problem the older he gets. He has no child. His wife is also growing older. Time seems to be running out. And it was out of this fear and anxiety that God comes to Abram to confirm his promises with what? With a formal covenant. Notice the first words from God in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying what? Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. But the first thing that God says to Abram is, don't fear. Don't worry. Abram needed yet another reminder of what God has already promised. Don't be afraid. It may seem that all of the promises are not going to be fulfilled. The time is running out. And in that moment, the Lord comes to and consoles Abram with this covenant. Brothers and sisters, we are very fortunate, aren't we? Why do you say that? Why do I say that? Because Abram does not have this. He did not have a chapter and verse to go back to to read. He did not have God's revealed, full revealed, completed revelation in hardbound, leather-bound Bibles. He only has that which God has spoken to him in the past. And that which God is progressively revealing to him. Now, this is important when we come to the 17th chapter of Noah, of, of Abraham, of Genesis, sorry. The Abrahamic covenant is complex because it is being revealed in a very complex manner. Not all at once, but a piece here and a piece there. It is initiated in chapter 12. It is reminded in chapter 13. It is confirmed in chapter 15 in one way and then confirmed in chapter 17 in another way. And it doesn't reach its full completion until we get to the 22nd chapter. And it yet all one covenant. This is very important for us to remember. Remember when we come to the 17th chapter. For there we will see the whole culmination of the covenant of Abraham. But this is one covenant progressively revealed or as our confession states revealed by further steps at this stage the covenant was just in the form of a promise that god has made and now that god was confirming he will bless abram with many descendants fear not you will be a great nation your descendants shall be as numerous as the dust on the earth and as numerous as the stars in the sky this is the first part of the covenant confirmed by god now Let's go to the second part. Number two, the covenant ceremony. Number two, the covenant ceremony. I'm not going to read all the verses, but it's verses 7 through 21. We are told in verse 18 that God made a covenant with Abram. At its most basic level, this is important, a covenant is an agreement between two people or two groups of people. A covenant is an agreement between, at its most basic level, 
two people or two groups of people. A covenant that we are most familiar with today. Anybody want to take a guess? Marriage. Marriage is a covenant. It is an agreement between two individuals. What is the agreement? They are agreeing to be wholly committed to one another. No matter what life brings, and also monogamous toward one another, no matter who comes, until death do they part. In this marriage ceremony, there are vows that two people are making toward one another. Uh, There are witnesses who are witnessing the vows that the two people are making toward one another. There are vows being made, though. Uh, Whenever you go to a wedding, if you ever hear the two individuals who are writing their own vows only talking about how much they love each other, they are not actually making any vows. In a marriage covenant, there there is a requirement to make vows. I will do this. I will do that. These are my vows that I make to you. So we can talk about all the ways that we love each other, but ultimately, the process of a ceremony is a covenant ceremony with vows. Amen? So, if one fails to uphold their commitments, they've broken covenant. And divorce is an option. They have broken covenant. That's the way that most of us are familiar with covenants today. Now, there's a different sense of a covenant, which we will talk about now, which is a a more theological covenant. And let's take a, a step back and do a bit of a recap on what a covenant in the theological sense is. Here's a theological definition of a covenant. It is a commitment with divine sanctions. It is a commitment with divine sanctions. In this commitment, there are two people or parties involved. For us here today, the two people are God In these theological covenants, it always begins with God. God, and the one that he is imposing his covenant on, Abram. Notice, it has divine sanctions. Sanctions imposed by God. God is the divine. God sets the terms of the covenant. God and Abram do not sit and did not sit at the negotiating table discussing the conditions of the covenant. Uh, you should do some research on the suzerain and vassal agreements of the old times, right? But God is ruler. He's the suzerain. He's the authority. He determines the particular terms and conditions of the covenant because he's the authority. He's the sovereign. He's the ruler. He imposes this covenant on the vassal, the weaker party that is Abram. And he has determined the terms and conditions that Abram must follow in this covenant. Are you all with me? Okay. Because he is God, Abram has no choice but to accept the terms and conditions. Abram can't say, ah, you know what? I thought about it. No, thanks. Doesn't work that way. God is saying, this is what it will be, and you will do this. If you don't, there are divine sanctions, meaning punishments, penalties. If you do, there are divine blessings. Amen? God, God's imposition... God is imposing this this covenant, but it's an act of grace intended for the betterment of Abram and his posterity, not for his destruction. That's important. So although the covenant is imposed, it is meant for the betterment of the person it is imposed on, not for the destruction of that person. Amen? So although it may seem like imposition is a negative thing, imposition is actually a gracious and wonderful thing. Why? 
Because in all of these covenants, it's the way that God condescends to man. Meaning, God doesn't have to do these wonderful things. He doesn't have to make any promises to Abram at all. But he does. God is under no obligation to relate to man in any kind of way. Our confession, chapter 7, verse 1, or chapter 7, paragraph 1, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of, by way of covenant. Our loving, gracious, merciful God condescends to man. But he didn't have to do these things. He graciously, graciously draws near to his people through covenants. God makes the first move. And those whom he covenants with must respond in faith and obedience. Covenants, again, are always meant for the improvement of one state, not for the destruction of one state. In these divine covenants, there are threats if the covenant is broken. And there are blessings for keeping the terms of the covenant. God is saying, I will do this and you will do that. If either one of us fail to keep our end of the agreement, let the sanctions come upon us. There are blessings if the terms are kept. There are cursings if the terms are not. The Lord has reminded Abram of the promise that he has made on his side. That he will give Abram land. That he will give Abram children. That he will bless Abram. Now Abram is asking for some kind of confirmation. Show me that you will do what you say that you will do. How will I know? The Lord then makes or calls Abram, uh, gives Abram some instructions that he must follow. Let's look at it in verse 9 of chapter 15. What are the instructions that God gives to Abram in chapter 15, verse 9 through 11? Abram, you want confirmation? Okay. Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite of the other. But he did not cut the birds. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, same day. To your descendants, I have given this land from the river Euphrates, as far as the great river of the river Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. In this part of the covenant, God promises land. He's already promised children, has he not? He's already promised descendants, has he not? This is a vow then that God describes with land and the region. Now, at this point, It seems like God is the only one who is making vows, vows of blessing. It may seem like this covenant, in this covenant, God is not requiring anything from Abram, right? Isn't God making a lot of promises? I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I will bless you with that. You will have children. You will have nations. Uh, Descendants will be great. You will have land, so on and so forth. It seems like God is really promising a lot, which is why some conclude that this is a covenant of grace. Because in a covenant, there are, I will do this and you will do that. Right? Who is so far the one who is making all of the I will do? God. This is because this covenant is not yet complete. Are you with me? In a covenant, there are, I will do this, you will do that. God is so far still promising what he will do. 
the covenant is not yet complete. It is being progressively revealed by further steps. At this point, there is no explicit vow or promise that Abram makes right now. This right now is simply what God is promising to do. It is God's part, if you will, and Abram's part will come later. Even though there is not explicit an explicit vow on Abram's part, there is some kind of implied devotion, isn't there? Isn't there some kind of implied devotion that Abram must have toward God? Think about this. What was the first thing that Abram did in obedience? He left his country, his family, his father's household. So we can't say that Abram has no act that he must obey, even thus far. When we come to the 17th chapter, we will see Abram does have a part to play. When we come to the 22nd chapter, we will see Abram has a big and very difficult part to play. So this is not a covenant of grace. This is a true covenant. And God is right now only giving to us his portion of the covenant. Now, what about the threats or penalties for breaking the covenant? There are blessings and there are threats for, of cursing if you break the covenant. This is where the animals that have been cut into two come into play. The animals have been severed into two. Now, this may seem weird, right? Go and grab these animals, cut them in half. And then what Abram does is he, he cuts them in half and then he separates them. They are uh, one piece apart from the other. The animals have been severed in two. Why? Because the animals are visible threats. If the covenant should be broken. The animals serve as visible threats if the covenant is broken. In that day, uh, the days when they would make these kinds of treaties and covenants, two peoples, two parties would make a covenant. They would cut the animals in two. The animals are cut in half. And where the blood was between those animals, those two parties would hold hands and walk together through that way of blood. Why? It was a symbol a visible symbol of saying, let what has happened to these animals happen to me or be done to me if I should not keep my end of the covenant, if I should not keep my part of the covenant. It was a visible reminder. If these animals or as these animals have been cut in two, so I shall be cut in two if I fail to keep my end of the covenant. If you would like to see a further explicit example of this, go to Jeremiah chapter 34 and you will see a better example of that explicitly verse 18, or especially in verse 18. Now, Something interesting happens at this point, because when these covenants were made, the two parties would walk together through this way of blood, through these severed animals. Rather than God walking with Abram through the severed animals, Abram is put into a deep sleep. Verse 17, it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. Now get the imagery here. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven. And a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. Abram is in a deep sleep, right? He is receiving a vision from God. Rather than the two parties, God and Abram, who are a part of this covenant, walking together through the severed animal pieces, there appears a smoking pot and a flaming torch. And that smoking pot and flaming torch walks through the severed animals. What is that? We're getting close to Halloween. It seems kind of spooky, doesn't it? 
What was the smoking pot and flaming torch? Through the scriptures, smoke and fire are regularly used to represent the presence of God. Now remember, who is Moses reading and writing to first? Who's this book of Genesis first being written and read to? The people of Israel. What are they doing as they are reading this? They are wandering through the desert. And as they are wandering through the desert, who is leading them by day and also leading them by night? And how so? Through the day, there is a cloud that cools them. And through the night, there is a pillar of fire that warms and guides them. So as they are seeing and hearing this imagery of a smoking pot and flaming torch, they would immediately think of the pillar of fire and the cloud by day that is leading through the the wilderness. They know this is God, Yahweh himself. These things represent the presence of God. And it is confirmed that this is the presence of God by Abram's what? Sense of fear and dread, sense of fear and terror. That is usually the way that people respond to the presence of God. Fear and terror is what they feel. God puts Abram to a deep sleep. And then God himself walks, as it were, walks through or between the carcasses that have been severed into. God is in effect saying that he will take sole responsibility to make sure that all that he has promised on his part, he will bring to pass. That's important, That the way I said that. All that he has promised on his part, he will be sure to bring to pass. If he does not keep his part, then he himself will take the penalties of breaking covenant. If he does not keep his part on God's part, this was the extent that God was willing to go to display his commitment to the one who is concerning or feeling concerned, feeling fear. God is saying, here's the extent that I will go on my side to keep my part of the covenant. Abram would like to know. How he can know that God will do all that God said he would do. And God has gone to this extent to show him how serious he is on his part to keep his end of the covenant. This was God's vow. Remember, although God is making this vow on his part, it does not mean that he is not requiring anything out of Abram, which we will see later. This is not an unconditional covenant. That's probably another way to say it. And this will be important for me to repeat this fact. So then why does God swear by himself? Why does God walk by himself through the way of blood? Who else is he going to swear by? In the normal covenant ceremonies, two equal parties would walk through the seven animals, keeping one another accountable to the vows. But there is no one equal to God. He cannot make such a vow by the name of another lest he cease to be God. Who will keep God accountable but God himself? If God swears by anyone but himself, he cannot be God alone. There is no one who is his equal. When the covenant was made before, it was made by two equal parties who say, if I fail to keep my part of the covenant, let me severed, let me be severed in two. God walks through this covenant ceremony alone, swearing by himself that he will keep his end of the covenant. Though this was a gracious act on the part of God. Listen, this is not the covenant of grace. 
I pray that all of you eventually will be able to know what I mean when I say that. Although this was a gracious act on the part of God, this was not the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace has been revealed to Abram in chapter 12, that the seed would come through his line, that through the seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That seed is none other than the skull crushing seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this covenant made with Abram is not that covenant of grace promised in Genesis chapter three and verse 15. That covenant was revealed to Abram, not established with Abram. The covenant of grace would be established at the cutting and the breaking of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. That's the covenant of grace. Also, this is not the covenant of grace. And I'm going to say it again in the sense that Abram has no part of obedience to play in this covenant. This far, thus far, this is what God will do. Again, we will come to later chapters as this covenant is progressed and we will see that Abram will be asked to, to offer up his only son, the one that he loves. And that will be a great cost that Abram reluctantly, but by faith, will obey to do. Again, Abram has already acted in obedience, has he not? He's left his own country. He's followed the call of God. And the promises of God. So this is what we have so far. In the Abrahamic covenant. This is what God has promised. As we progress. We will get to Abram's side. Now we will do an entire sermon. Just on the Abrahamic covenant. Explaining all of the nuances therein. But I'm hoping that as we go through Genesis. You're seeing. Okay there's a part there. Oh yes I remember there was a part there. Oh, yes, I remember there's a part there, but it all seems like it's still coming, stemming from Genesis chapter 12. You're right. So hopefully you're putting the pieces together as we progress in this narrative. Now, let's conclude. Number three, God was gracious to Abram. This entire chapter displays the kindness of God. It begins with encouragement to Abram. Fear not. Why does God say fear not? Now listen, because Abram was afraid. What was he afraid of? He was afraid that he was not going to have the promised child that was promised to him. It may seem odd that of all, out of all the things that Abram has thus far experienced, he's fearful. Abram was a man. Abram was a feeble man. A man of God, a a man of faith, yes, but he was a man. Well, hasn't he just been given a great victory? Uh, Almost a a victory that you would you would think is improbable. He, with just two other uh, three other allies, has defeated great nations. He's been blessed by Melchizedek, and now all of a sudden, he's fearful. Maybe this might help you. This point, we must not assume that chapter fifteen is the next day. Are you with me? I'll say that again. We must not assume that chapter 15, when it says, uh, when we get to verse 1, it says, uh, now after these things, we must not assume that, so the next day, it's not the case. Abram was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans when he was how old? 75. And what we have read thus far in the life of Abram is transpiring not over days, but over years. 
we will find eventually that Abram will wait in the span, time span of 25 years to finally see the child that God promised 25 years earlier. At the end of all of the covenants, we will see it has been 30 years until it is all complete. So when God comes to Abram with great encouragement, fear not, it is just at the right time. It is just at the right time. Why? Because Abram was on the verge of despair. Abram, though he be touted as the man of faith, and he was, was not immune to bouts of fear and terror. The Lord comes to his fragile, weak, and fearful child with great encouragement. Fear not, Abram. Let not your heart be troubled. Let your heart be at ease. Dear ones, when God's people struggle with fear and doubt, God always comforts us with gentleness. Always. Isaiah 42.3, a bruised reed. Get the imagery of that. A bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. The bruised reed has been beaten by the waters, beaten by the rocks, beaten by the debris that is traveling down the river. And it is hanging there. And rather than it being snatched off, the Lord comes and repairs the bruised reed that is barely holding on. The faintly burning wick, it is that, that, that candle light that is barely at the very bottom. For those of you who burn candles and you see it just barely, barely, barely holding on, the Lord does not snuff it out. The Lord lights it aflame again and, re- and repairs the wick so that it may burn with great intensity again. The Lord knows Abram was on the verge of quitting. The Lord knows Abram was on, was struggling with assurance. And yet the Lord did not allow the light of Abram's faith to be snuffed out. The, the faintly lit candle, he did not blow out. When we brothers and sisters are on the verge of being snuffed out, when the light of our faith appears to be flickering away, the Lord comes And he encourages us, as I pray he is doing even now, with promises that he has made in the past and that he reminds us of. Fear not. He will protect us from fear and doubt. Brothers and sisters, are you struggling with fear and doubt? If you are, know that God is not standing by condemning you, saying, why can't you believe? Why can't you have more faith? But rather, he comes alongside you and me and walks alongside us, stands by our side, walks with us, as the Bible says, and sticks closer to us as a brother to carry us along, to help us along. My wife and I, in our times of devotion, are reading reading sermons by Charles Spurgeon. And the question is, when has he let you down? When has he let you down? Spurgeon says, you fell in Adam. Did he cease to love you? No, he became the second Adam to redeem you. You sinned in practice and brought your head to the condemnation of God. 
You deserved his wrath and his utter anger. Did he then forsake you? No. He saw you ruined in the fall, yet he loved you, notwithstanding all. He sent his minister after you. You despised him. He preached the gospel in your ears. You laughed at him. You broke God's Sabbath. You despised his word. Did he forsake you? No. Determined to save you, he watched over your path. Whilst Satan, blind slave, you sported with death. And at last, he arrested you by his grace. He humbled you. He made you penitent, brought you to his feet, and forgave you all your sins. Since then, has he left you? You have often left him. Has he ever left you? Has he ever turned away? Has he ever turned away his heart and shut up his bowels of compassion? No. Children of God, it is your solemn duty to say no and bear witness to his faithfulness. You have been in severe afflictions and in dangerous circumstances. Did your friend desert you then? Others have been faithless to you. He that ate bread with you has lifted up his heel against you. But has Christ ever forsaken you? Has there ever been a moment when you could not go to him and say, Master, thou hast betrayed me. Could you once, in the blackest hour of your grief, dare to impain his fidelity? Could you dare say to him, Lord, thou hast promised what thou didst not perform. Will you bear witness now? Not one good thing has he failed to perform to his children. And do you fear that he will forsake you? And then the bright ones from the throne say, ye glorified spirits, did Christ forsake you? You have passed through the Jordan stream. Did he leave you there? You've been baptized in the black flood of death. Did he forsake you then? You have stood before the throne of God. Did he then deny you? And they all answered, no. Brothers and sisters, he will stand by you. You who are his own. He will never leave you and never forsake you. He will fulfill all that he has promised. God knows. He knows that we are filled with doubt and fear. He knows our frame. We are dust. He comes to save, to help, and to keep. And how does he do so? God gives covenants. He gives covenant promises in order to assure us of his faithfulness. His covenant is his gesture on his part to assure us of just how serious he is. That he is willing to go through this covenant ceremony with Abram and display that he himself will take the sanctions. He himself will take the penalties upon himself if he fails to keep his end of the covenant. Abram was struggling with assurance. Brothers and sisters, are you struggling with assurance? I suspect that many of us often do. May I ask you a question? Where do you go? Where do you go when you are struggling with assurance? Where do you go when you wrestle with your own assurance? The Lord commands us to go to the covenants that he's made. The Lord commands that we go to Christ and see the great covenant of grace, the great covenant of redemption that has been fulfilled in Christ. And what are the terms of that covenant? What are the guarantees? What are the promises? The law will be written on our hearts. He will put in his, he will put his spirit in us and be our God. 
These are the promises of the new covenant. God gives us also a covenant meal, the Lord's Supper. And each time we partake of it, it reminds us that Christ has died for us, that he has given his life for us so that we might have ongoing spiritual life. Ephesians 1 tells us that the spirit is the seal of that new covenant. If God has has not withheld his Holy Spirit from us, will he not give to us everything that he promises in the new covenant? God gives us baptism. It pictured to show that we are united to Christ, having died with him, been buried with him, and also been raised with him. We have those great promises found in the last chapters of the book of Revelation where God promises that he himself will be with his people. God makes all these promises by way of covenant. My friend, if you are struggling with assurance and you try to settle the, 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 the idea or the, the problem of assurance by looking into yourself, trying to determine whether or not you are good enough, acceptable enough, or have enough faith, you will always wrestle with assurance until the day you die. You will not find that you were ever good enough. You will not find that you were ever, that you ever have enough faith. If you want to overcome assurance, Look to the covenant that God has made in Christ. See who it is that carries out the covenant. It is the perfect one, the sinless one, who is our prophet, who is our priest, and who is our king. Look to Christ. The covenant that God makes with Abram here is typological as well. It's pointing forward. It is pointing forward to to that greater covenant that God makes in the new covenant. The Lord establishes a covenant first with Adam, man. Adam uh, was to make the world like the Garden of Eden. He was to work it and to keep it. He, he was to, to tend the first temple, the Garden of Eden. He was the prophet, priest, and king of the new creation. And he was given a command. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He made a promise of blessing, God did. That God would bless Abram or Adam with eternal life if he kept the covenant. And there was also a threat That if Adam disobeyed and broke covenant, he would die. In that day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And we all know Adam broke covenant with God. And after man's fall, the Lord God graciously comes and makes a a promise that a seed would come. Destroy the works of of Satan who led Adam into temptation. Restore the image of God that is now polluted by sin. And that was the promised covenant of grace. God would do this. God would do this. Now, remember the two carcasses, the dead animals symbolized by the fate of the one who would break the covenant. That's what Adam and all of his posterity, you and I, deserve. We deserve to be cut in two. We deserve to be severed from limb to limb. But Christ came. The Son of God came incarnate in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And Christ was cut in two. Christ was cut in two so that he might bear the curse that we deserved, that he might take the wrath that we deserve. The scriptures declared in Second Corinthians chapter five, and verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. When Christ came and died on the cross, he took the penalty that we deserved. He took the penalty that we deserved. God himself took the penalty upon himself. He completed the covenant of grace 
And it is the new covenant that is so much greater than any covenant that comes before, any previous covenant that came before, but that also pointed toward that great new covenant. When the new covenant came, or when the covenant was made in the garden, the responsibility fell on Adam and his posterity, all of his offspring. Adam should have been torn in two. We all should have been torn in two. But in the covenant of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ offers up himself to be torn in two on our behalf. God was in effect saying, let this curse come upon me. Though we are the ones who broke covenant so that we might be saved from the righteous judgment and wrath of God. And God was under no obligation under no obligation to make this covenant, under no obligation to condescend to man. Yet the second member of the eternal trinity took on flesh, actively came under the law, passively submitted to death, becoming a curse on our behalf, suffering in our place, and on the third day, rising from the dead, entering into glory so that we, he, might bring many sons to glory. He has gone before us. He has walked alone. Because there is none who are his equal. And this confirmation of the covenant that God makes with Abram serves to point forward to the covenant of grace established in the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. To God be the glory. I pray that you see the purpose of the covenant. That it is, yes, made with Abram. But it also is typological pointing forward to Abram's greater seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not done with this covenant. We're going to continue with it when we get to the 17th and 22nd chapter. But I pray that today you are seeing a particular Baptist view of the Abrahamic covenant. Let's pray.